All right, if you have a Bible, if you have um, a copy of the Bible, um, may you please open it to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 18. Um, it'll be on the screen as well if you don't have a Bible with you. That's okay. Um, we believe the Bible is God's Word. It's uh, inspired by God. It's His very words written through human authors. Um, as a church, we stand under the Bible We don't have our own message. We don't have that kind of authority or creativity. We sit under God's word, uh, and that dictates and shapes everything we do. And so week by week, we just open the Bible and see what God has to say, and we get led by him, um, passage by passage, book by book, year by year. And by doing that, God builds healthy and faithful and gospel-saturated churches. Um, And so that's where we're going to begin today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. I believe the Lord led me to this passage a long time ago when I was thinking about what is the first sermon we're going to do in our new church in a public way. Uh, And this message really encapsulates who we are as a church, our mission, our focus. Would you read with me? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Would you pray? Almighty God, would you bless the preaching of your word? In Jesus' name, amen. At the beginning of starting a new venture, starting a new church, uh, you have the great privilege and freedom of doing whatever you want. We're a new church. We have a blank canvas. We can literally set it up and do it however we like. But with that great amount of freedom comes a lot of choice and decision and complexity. If you can do whatever you want, what should we do? What should our focus be? What, What are the main things that we ought to be putting our time and effort into? You know, should we focus all of our energy on creating great worship, which the guys did a really good job this morning? Should we do that? Should that be the main focus of our church? Or should we focus everything on having an incredible kids program that draws people in? Or perhaps we should do amazing food and hospitality. We put all of our resources and energy into that. Or maybe we're going to be a bold and um, outreach church that goes out, sets up soapboxes and preaches to the city. Perhaps we're meant to put our time and effort into creating an incredible mercy ministry that seeks the vulnerable and oppressed. Or maybe we need to create a fun and exciting atmosphere. 
Perhaps we need helpful and inspiring and practical teaching every week that connects your Sunday to a Monday. A family, community feel. There's so many options on the table as to what is meant to be our one and central focus. So many options, so much freedom, so much choice, but with that comes complexity. Not to mention all the options, you've got all the pressure. Will it work? Will people come? Will people stay? Will people give? Will we fail? All those pressures come in into the building and establishing of something new, and in particular, a new church. The blank slate is great, but it makes things really hard. So what will be the ultimate passion and focus of this new church? What should it be? Well, thankfully, we don't have to make it up. Thankfully, we don't have to kind of figure that out on our own. Because we believe the Bible is God's word and that the Bible shapes who we are and what we do, the Bible tells us what our passion and focus and energy and drive is meant to be about. And that is really going to be the point of the message this morning. We're going to explain what the one focus and passion of our church is. And in a sentence, we like to say it like this. What's the mission statement of our church? Well, we are a church passionate about knowing, applying, and proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in Parramatta. We love singing the gospel. We love talking about the gospel. We love preaching the gospel. We love teaching the gospel. We love, you know, hanging out and explaining the gospel to one another. We love living out of the truth of the gospel. That, that's our ma- mantra. The message of Jesus Christ is our mantra. That is the one thing that shapes us. But we didn't just arrive at this because it's a sovereign grace thing or it's what our church did at Warunga. No, no, we got there because of what the Bible has told us is meant to be the central thing. You see, the whole Bible is indeed focused on the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. From the beginning to the end, if you open in Genesis, you'll, you'll learn of the story of God creating the world and then humans rebelling and sinning and then God promising to send someone who will make it all right. And then the rest of the whole Bible is the search for the person who will make our world right again. And Jesus bursts onto the scene and declares that he is the one. And then the rest of the New Testament declares and says, he is the one. Talk about him. Preach him. Make him your message. The whole Bible is gospel-centered. And so our church, that is our ultimate focus, passion, and identity. And to show you that, to show you that from the Bible, from the Scripture, I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, because I think it beautifully demonstrates this idea. We've got two points this morning, our message and our mission, from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. So we come to this, this letter, 1 Corinthians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church not unlike Sydney, a wealthy um, city, Corinth was in the ancient world, a city that was um, smart, erudite, it had lots of trade, lots of things going for it, but also a city of vice and sin, a city of multiple religions, a city that had a lot of things mixing around in the stirring pot. And Paul came in, in about you know, AD 50 or so, and came and brought this message of the gospel. 
And when he preached the gospel, people were saved. And they started gathering into a little local church. And that local church, you know, centered around the gospel. But over time, that little local church, the church of Corinth, started to forget the gospel. They started to move on from the gospel. They started to think, okay, the gospel saves us, but now who's got the power? Who's got the gifts? Who's got the freedom? And they started to create divisions and dissension within the church. They started to become about other things. And so Paul takes up his pen, the sword of his pen, or you know, quill, whatever it was back then, and he writes on a piece of parchment, and he speaks to this church, and he has one clear and central thing he wants to do in this letter. And it's to bring them back to the thing of first importance. What is the one essential thing that a church needs, no matter their stage, whether it's the beginning, the middle, or the end of the church? The one essential thing, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.23, is this. But we preach Christ crucified. Paul states it again emphatically in the next chapter. Um, it's not just one verse here. We're going to see multiple verses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says it like this. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you, nothing, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Earlier in the chapter, in the first chapter, he says, For Christ, that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And later, he ends near the last, second last chapter of the book, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So he's reminding them. They already know it, but he's reminding them again. See the central importance. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What's of first importance? What's the most foundational, essential focus of a New Testament church? Christ died for our sins. For Paul, you can see a pattern. When he's leading a church, establishing a church, correcting a church, he's got one thing he wants to do. He wants to bring them back to the scandalous and offensive message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's a pattern, there's a structure throughout the whole Bible. All of Paul's letters in the New Testament, it always comes back to Jesus Christ and him crucified. C.J. Mahaney, who Louis was referring to earlier, he started Sovereign Grace Churches back in the U.S. Um, and he wrote a great book called Living the Cross-Centered Life. And in that book, he says this. In the midst of our various responsibilities and many possible areas of service in the kingdom of God, one overarching truth should motivate all our work and affect every part of who we are. Christ died for our sins. This message cuts through with simplifying and unifying clarity. What do we do as a new church? Preach Christ crucified. What do we do as an old church? Preach Christ crucified. What do we sing about? Christ crucified. What do we teach the kids up in the kids' work? Christ crucified. What do we do? Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. 
We're a one message church. <laughs> you know, you come back, you're going to see every week, like, they sing about the same thing. They preach every message. It's like the same. They, they talk about Jesus' death on the cross and what that means for them. We're a same things church. You're not going to get anything too inventive or avant-garde or innovative here. We've got one thing we're here to do. Preach Christ and Him crucified. Mark Dever, um, in, his, in his book, he says, he says this. Friends, he's, he's speaking to you right now, so listen. <laughs> if you find yourself moving to another community and looking for a new church, look for this most of all. The clear preaching of Christ and Him crucified. Look for it in the hymns and prayers and in the preaching. Look for a commitment to faithfully offensive evangelism. <laughs> evangelism that makes clear that we do not save ourselves, but that our only hope is trusting in God alone through Christ alone. There are many things a church can do. Feed the, sick, uh, feed the poor, help the sick, proclaim, teach, Great music, great coffee. We've got more milk, so you can enjoy one of our great coffees later. Party together. Do life together. But there's only one thing a church is about. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But why, why this? Why does Paul make this the one thing? Why is this his one message? Why not focus on other things? Other things might actually grow a church faster. Other things might produce more fruit. Other things might make things better and bigger, more impressive, more influential. Why does Paul, why does God make the preaching of the cross the one thing a church must focus itself on? Well, we see the answer in our text. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and this is really the one kind of take-home point of why do we do this? Why are we a church that preaches this? Because the message of the cross is the power of God, even though it doesn't look like it. That's really how I want to summarize those, those verses in 18 verse 25. The message of the cross is the power of God, even though it doesn't look like it. And that's why we have to keep emphasizing it, because it really doesn't look like it. You see, if you go back to verse 22, you'll see that Paul is talking about different competing ideas about what people want in their church, in the church in Corinth. In the world and in the church was the same problem. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. See, in their church at the time, they had lots of Jewish people. And the Jewish people loved the power of God. The Jewish people wanted a Messiah. That, that's what that word Christ means. It's, it's an old Hebrew term that means the promised one. The one who was promised back in the Garden of Eden when men and women sinned against God, there was a promise that someone would come and make everything right. And the Jewish people were waiting for that person. They called him Messiah, anointed one. In the Greek, the word is Christ, Christos. And so that, that's kind of why Paul says Christ crucified. So the Jews, they want Christ. That's who they want. But the type of Christ that the Jews want is a powerful, religious, military, political figure one who will kick the Romans out of their land, one who will establish the temple and establish Israel as the great nation again. That's what the Jews want. They want a powerful Messiah. 
They want signs and wonders of who he is. But how did Christ come? He came crucified. A crucified Messiah makes no sense to those who want a powerful religious institution. You can't do much from the grave. So it makes kind of sense as to why they would reject Christianity. They think, well, if your Messiah died, then he ain't the Messiah. On the other side, you've got the Greeks. That's representative of everyone who's non-Jewish. Another word for that is Gentile. For the Greeks were the Roman people of the day. They didn't seek signs so much as they sought wisdom. They wanted a beautiful and eloquent rhetorical message that just felt right, sounded good. In their culture, they loved the giving and sharing of ideas. They loved powerful rhetoric, logic, persuasion. They would pay money to listen to these people get up and orate and speak, and they would, they would join behind them. Men that could explain the mysteries of the world, men that could captivate an audience. That's what they wanted. But the message of a crucified ruler has no beauty to it. It's foolishness. For the Romans and the Greeks at the time, crucifixion, you know, like for us, like we have a picture, if we put the Christ crucified picture up, um, the series slide, if we have it, you'll see a picture of a cross. It's all nice and sanitary and clean. But for the Romans, to speak of a cross was impolite. In a company like this, you would not mention the word crucifixion. You guys are too good for that, okay? Crucifixion was reserved only for slaves, only for the worst of the worst criminals. In fact, if a Roman was to be crucified, to be hung on a cross, naked and shamed in front of everyone, it had to get express written permission from Caesar. So to preach, to make your message, Paul the Apostle, to go in to a Greek town and say, I have a message, everyone, do you want to listen? Everyone gathers in and says, Jesus Christ was crucified. Foolishness. Who's this babbler? Get away from him. Jews demand signs. Greek seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. And the result? It's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. It's not very encouraging when you're trying to start a church. Okay, what are we going to do? We're going to preach Christ crucified. What's going to be the result? People are going to stumble over the message, and people are going to think you're an idiot. Great! <laughs> I said that the reason why Paul makes this the central message of his church and, and the focus of the Bible is because the message of the cross is the power of God, even though it doesn't look like it. Because what God loves to do is turn everything up on its head and shake us up all around. As humans, we like to build great things. We like to make things our own. We want to reach God. Look at how many religions there are in the world, all trying to explain how to reach God. But God has designed a message which turns it all upside down and makes it utterly foolish and weakness. But in that, he makes it power. Go back to verse 18, and we'll see God's plan, how it unfolds. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the 
sorry, and the discerning of the discern the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. You see, God has designed salvation in such a way that there's no room for human pride. God specifically makes it so that no one can become a Christian and then boast about it. Because he puts forward a crucified Messiah. An offensive and foolish message. See, any attempt to cling to your own wisdom, to your own merit, your own power, your own religious observance, any attempt to be good enough for God is an expression of that human wisdom. It's an expression of like, God, I'm not going to listen to what you want me to do. I'm going to make it up myself. And God turns that on his head, on, on your own head, on our own heads. There's only two possible reactions to the message of the cross. It's either foolishness or wisdom and power. He goes further, Paul, to kind of explain why this is so powerful. Read verse 20 and 22. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What Paul is saying here is this. Bring out the best you got. Bring out the smartest, most talented, the most clever, the best scientists, the best philosophers, the best sociologists, the best educators, the best orators. Bring out the best you got. Where are they? Bring them all out and get them to tell you how to get to a holy God. Get them to tell you how do you make yourself, your sinful self, right with a holy God. Get them to explain that to you. Line them all up one by one by one. And none of them will ever tell you by their own wisdom the way that will actually get you saved. No one would ever come up with a message like this. You know, no political theory centers around the death of its God. No religious system centers around the death of its God. It's weird. It doesn't make sense. It goes against our natural instincts. All the study, all the reading, all the books, all the conferences, all the science will never lead you to the message of the cross. So how is this offensive message of the cross actually the power of God? What's so powerful about it? Because the message of the cross, the message of Christ crucified, the message that Christ died for our sins is the only way you can be saved. And in that, if you believe the message, the power of God changes your heart from dead to alive, changes your eternity from hell into heaven. The power of God is demonstrated by you humbling yourself and saying, I'm not right with you. I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not clean enough. I'm not moral enough. I'm not pure enough. And I never could be. I need you. I needed you to die in my place. I needed you to go before me and lay down your life. And when you make that your claim, the power of God comes and your life is changed. 
the power of God comes and your family is changed. Your marriages are changed. Your kids, your parenting, your work, everything changes through this weak and foolish admission. I stand with the crucified Savior. My, my God is a crucified God. You see how God turns the wisdom upside down. He turns our natural in, um, inclinations upside down. So how do you achieve righteousness with God? How do you get close to God? It's not by wisdom. It's not by works. It's not by being good enough. It's not by coming to this church. Paul said it, verse 21. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You have to believe in Christ and him crucified. That's the only way to get to God. No money, no status, no privilege, humble faith. Sometimes that humble faith is the hardest thing you could ever do. Sometimes it's actually easier to work than it is to admit you were wrong. It's easier to get busy doing all these things to try and impress God than it is to say, you know what? I'm so sinful that God had to be crucified in my place. But when you come to that place, you experience the power of God in salvation. What do you think of the cross this morning? Where do you stand with the cross of Jesus Christ? Is it power or foolishness? Is it power or weakness? Is it wisdom or foolishness? There's only two ways you can kind of go. And we're all on journeys in different spots. I get that. It takes time. But ultimately, there's only two options. He's either power or foolishness. The message of the cross is offensive. It's scandalous. There's nothing that would naturally lead us toward it. As a church, it's so easy to move beyond it, to do other things, get excited about other things. And that's why we must make it central. Peter Green says this, only the man who's prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Fleming Rutledge wrote an incredible book on the crucifixion. And in it, she explains this passage quite well. And I think this summarizes what I've been trying to say um, in this first point this morning. She says this. The cross can never be merely assumed, but must always be interpreted and replaced at the center. There's a centrifugal force at work in human nature. We want to spin out and away from the offense of the cross. And here at Southern Grace Church of Parramatta, we want to bring it all the way back into the cross every single week. Therefore, we have one message as a church. Our message is this. We preach Christ and him crucified. And so if this message is the power of God, if this message has the ability to change people's eternities, 
has, it's the only way that people can go from death to life. How do we go about building that into the life of our church? What do we do? And that moves us on to our second point, our mission. Our mission. You see, our message really is our mission. That's why if you notice in our mission statement, our message is our mission. I'll I'll read to you our mission statement again. It says, we are a church passionate about knowing, applying, and proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in Parramatta. Everything we do goes through this lens so that we keep the thing of first importance of first importance. We're a church passionate about the gospel. We don't just believe it and go, yeah, it's good. But we are passionate about it. 1 Peter 1 says this. Oh, it's not in my notes. But it says this. Though we have not seen him, we love him. And though we do not now see him, we believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We're a church that is filled with inexpressible joy and glory because of what Christ has done for us. We don't just believe the gospel. We love the gospel. We're passionate about it. Secondly, we're passionate about knowing the gospel. Paul said this in Philippians 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We center and structure our church around knowing the gospel more deeply. We want to consider everything else as lost compared to knowing him. So we, we preach the gospel, we sing the gospel, we teach the gospel in kids' work. We explain it, we read books about it, we talk about it. That's what we do. Because nothing else is of greater treasure than the gospel. And you can never come to a full understanding of it. You can only go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Secondly, we're passionate about applying the gospel. You see, the gospel is not just a message to be believed, it's a message to be lived out. James says this in um, his book, that is, James is Jesus' brother, um, which is you know, another good evidence that Jesus must have been pretty special if his own brother thinks he's God. Um, I, I certainly can't, like my little brother, <laughs> we don't think each other's God. But, but James, something must have happened. Something powerful must have happened. Convincing must have happened. And he says this, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, that is the gospel, and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. You see, we preach the gospel, we want to know the gospel, but we also want to apply the gospel. We want gospel-centered lives, gospel-centered marriages, gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered work, gospel-centered romance, gospel-centered everything. Because when you put the Bible into practice, the promise is this, you'll be blessed in your doing. Coming to church week by week by week and hearing is not a blessing. It's only a blessing when it translates into action. 
And so we're a church that wants to teach how do you live out the implications of the gospel in every facet of life. Thirdly and finally, we're a church passionate about proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to know it, we want to apply it, and we want to proclaim it. Because it's the power of God. It's the only hope we've got. We, we can't go into Parramatta downtown and say, hey, we've got this great kids program. <laughs> we, we can't, we don't have that. We have one thing. And so Paul says in Romans 10, and, and this is a great hope to anyone in the room who isn't yet a believer. You're not yet convinced. Here's what you've got to do to become a Christian. Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Praise the Lord. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's our message. Because the message of the cross has the power to save those who are unbelievers. And if you put your faith in him, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've become, no matter what you've left undone in your life, no matter what shame or guilt or brokenness you carry, or no matter what burden you bring, if you humble yourself, confess your sin, take Christ as Lord, you will be saved. And so we take that message and we tell people, because everyone's got to know. Romans 10, 14 goes on to say this, but how are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they've not... Sorry, got a bit carried away. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they've been sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We are a sent church with a message to proclaim and that's what we're passionate about doing we don't want the message of the cross as offensive and stumbling block as it may be to people's first ears we don't want it to be the best kept secret we don't want to have like this holy little huddle we're like oh how great is the cross yeah that's us here on a sunday morning and then we're at work and what'd you do on the weekend oh nothing just uh, hung out with my family. That's not what we want to be. We want to be a church which is passionate about telling people of this eternal reality. And we don't just believe the gospel is the gospel. It's the glorious gospel. I love that adjective before the word gospel there. The gospel is not just the gospel. Yeah, I believe the gospel. It's the glorious gospel. This amazing message. And we do it in Parramatta. We have a home, we have a focus, we have a mission, we have a people, we have hearts, we have lost souls, we have people that don't yet know Christ that need to know this message. There's many different religions in our city. There's many different ideas about how to get to God. There's many people that think there is no God. They've got to know. And so that's why we're here. That's our one thing as a church. And we want to invite you to join in with us. Whether you're a new believer or you're an old saint, whether you've begun your journey with Christ or you haven't yet, our doors are wide open. Our hearts are wide open. Come, enjoy. Come, hear. Come, explore. Come and join in with us as we go about this one focused and central and unifying task as we 
preach Christ crucified and see lives and eternities and generations and families changed forever. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, compassionate God, merciful God, glorious God, kind God, powerful God, we come to you by only one means, the blood of your Son. We thank you that you sent your Son at the right time to save those who are perishing. We don't deserve this privilege. We've got nothing to boast of. But we boast joyfully and happily in you, O oh Lord. We love you. Would you make yourself known to us in a fresh and deeper way? Would you establish the work of our hands? Lord, would you help us to be a church passionate about knowing and applying and proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? For it is your power to save. We pray this in Jesus' name.